Hey guys, welcome to the World of Clubs New Podcast, Veris Lunches. This month, in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, we'll be talking about current issues in South and Central America. First up, we'll be talking about the current issues that have persisted since 1985 in Venezuela. Um, does anyone want to start us off? Uh, yeah, so I think one of the interesting uh, kind of things that we've been looking at is really the uh, like the massive hyperinflation um, and lack of human rights in Venezuela, and that's kind of been a result of a lot of different factors. Um, but you know, one of them was uh, the massive decrease in oil prices, um, and then also there is the question of kind of um, I guess like. Oh, I don't know how to say it, like, if Maduro's rule is actually legitimate or not. Yeah, the disputed election, certainly. I mean, Venezuela has uh, has had its fair share of problems since 1985, when the OPEC oil crisis crashed because of Saudi Arabia, and the pair, back then, it was under the Paris regime, and that wasn't able to handle the crisis and the oil prices and inflation just started rising. In fact, I mean, if you think about it, I believe since the 1970s, in, inflation has been in the double digits in uh, Venezuela, which like compared to its current inflation in the thousands or even million percentage isn't that much, but compared to a lot of other countries that have a inflation that because full employment or a generally good inflation range would be 2 to 6% as most econ students have thought but this has been generally really way ahead and a lot of leaders for example Chavez and Maduro have taken advantage of the Venezuelans inflation problems and the poverty that is rampant in order to gain and consolidate power I mean, yeah, that's interesting because a lot of, like, I think within the cultural history of Venezuela, the, the general population views, especially Chavez, as um, kind of a, I guess, like a beloved figure and really this, uh, this revolutionary who uh, kind of started the, the, the leftist movement, or at least was a huge contributor to the leftist movement in Venezuela. And so... It, it's interesting to me if, you know, the result of this, I guess, if Venezuela got to where it is now because of Chavez or because of Maduro. So it's like, you know, I don't really know that. That's true. I mean, a lot of the rioting and humanitarian violence was committed against both. For example, I know in 2007 and 2009 when uh, Chavez created the referendum on unlimited term limits for the president, he started imprisoning a lot of his political opposition and, you know, started censoring a lot of the press. And in a way, he started clamping down on the people's freedom, the very people that he sought to protect and, you know, fight for. Yeah, I mean, even after, like, the whole, like, oil price, like, crash and everything, I actually had a friend that lived in Venezuela, and she moved from ISM, and they actually had to evacuate because she would tell me that like when they'd go in stores and stuff, they would 
lack a bunch of just like basic necessities like food water like it was very scarce in like stores and stuff so it definitely affected like a lot of people and even like people that i know it's certainly terrible a lot of i mean the venezuelans are in a very terrible time right now and in, in, if you think about it it's an effort to gain more oil power and more oil support amongst the OPEC members because Venezuela has the highest number of oil reserves, even greater surpassing Saudi Arabia. So, but their production is less than one sixth of Saudi Arabia's right now. So the potential for them to, you know, be able to export all this oil and get money is there, but bad regimes, terrible leaders are just making the situation a lot worse. Um, moving on to like, to like international support for the Venezuelan government, like uh, recently, right? Uh, like a number of countries, like such as the U.S., have faced sanctions on them for their like corruption and uncontested elections, and just sort of, like just how they're treating the people, I guess. But uh, I think it's uh, yeah, a lot of countries have been given sanctions, but then there's also been like I think one country that's been helping them, which is Colombia. So like Colombia has been like uh, accepting lots of immigrants. Uh, migrants from uh, Venezuela, as in the past, Venezuela helped Colombians go into their countries. So, like, yeah, Colombia is really the only country that's helping the Venezuelan people. And I just think it's a quite an interesting current thing that's been going on. Uh, I mean, I think I would I would kind of disagree with that a little bit. Um, I mean, I think certainly the cultural, like, like you said, maybe there's the historical context of there being kind of that um, that element of like community or brotherhood, but uh, you know, I lived in Ecuador for two years before coming to ISM, and it was uh, kind of like what you mentioned, Suman, about just the general displacement of the Venezuelan people and how it's been like, you know, you'd see just really, really, I think probably at every street corner you would see, you know, a really, really young Venezuelan family. Um, and you know a lot of Venezuelans working at grocery stores or cutting hair, like, uh, so it, it seems like this had been, this has been a problem that has kind of been in place, not just recently, but you know, many of the people that I got to know and spoke to had been there for um, probably 10 years. And so this is a pretty like long lasting problem. I mean, if we consider the Simon Bolivar revolution, Bolivia, Colombia, and Venezuela were under this whole Gran Colombia, nation and i think yeah definitely like kareem said that's certainly a unification point there is a shared cultural history there that kind of definitely brings them together but like micah said there's also a general displacement of venezuelan people that are just fleeing from the economic political problems and humanitarian crisis that plague them and i think especially now um because of COVID-19 because like a lot of the places are closing down for lockdown. You have a lot of displaced uh, Venezuelans who are being forced to um, migrate back to Venezuela and of course like that causes a lot of problems number one like the poverty rates rise again because of the unemployment and I mean on the way back to their country or back to family members in other places there's always like a risk of like sex or human trafficking or rape or abuse or, I mean, COVID-19 infection, especially since um, 
because of hyperinflation, a lot of like essential goods like face masks and gels and even water for hospitals um, have not been available. Yeah, I was going to say like already before COVID-19, they were like short on a bunch of like ne- like necessary supplies. And even after this pandemic, like definitely like someone said, that you're going to have like Venezuelans coming back into Venezuela, which would like significantly increase COVID cases, which are just, it's just, an, it's not a good situation for the country and it's a good economy. Um, moving on, we'll be talking about the 2019 protests and subsequent resignation and removal of Evo Morales from office. So uh, one note about this is that Evo Morales came to power somewhere, I believe, around 2005 when he started you know, gaining power from the middle class to working class because he came from a very lower income, lesser privileged family and he has a lot of indigenous roots from the Bolivian people. And I think that was very interesting because he came to power uh, with the idea of, you know, supporting him, like the idea of from the people, for the people, by the people that Abraham Lincoln originally saw. But I found it very interesting that they removed him from office after the disputed election results. Yeah, I think that, uh, I don't remember necessarily the, I guess like the the intricacies of um, his removal, but I do remember being very concerned, uh, you know, he had been a, uh, yeah, like, I guess, you know, he was, like you mentioned, he was the first um, indigenous president in South America, actually, to be fully indigenous and so that was a really big point of pride in um, I know at least for the people in Bolivia I mean he was also a champion of a lot of left-leaning kind of socialist policies that actually did a lot of really did a lot of good for the Bolivian population themselves for the the lower classes Um, and so I remember reading about during his uh, you know when he was deposed there was kind of this interim president, uh, Janine Añez Chavez, I think is her name. Uh, yeah, was, Janine Añez. Yeah, it was just, it was weird because like there was talk for a while that she wouldn't like give up power, like she was gonna cancel elections. And I don't really know like what's going on with that right now, but I know that was happening in the past. Um, Next, we'll be talking about the very popular Bolsonaro, Brazil, and climate change policies. Um, Bolsonaro came to power very recently in Brazil, you know, feeding off the populist movement that's been rampant all around the world, particularly if we see in the US and Europe. And it's very interesting to see such a movement taking place in, I mean, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but generally a lower economically developed country, because the point of uh, the main uh, motto of these uh, populist groups is the fact that they want to, you know, reduce immigration and, you know, become a more nationally patriotic nation with all, with a very homogenous population, not necessarily including all these immigrants that have arrived there. So I find it very interesting that he came to power on this basis of populism. Um, yeah, I mean, 
Oh, sorry. sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, you can go. Okay. Um, and I think from, like, the research that I did surrounding him, um, if I may be frank, he kind of, um, he kind of seems like the Brazilian version, at least to me, of, like, Donald Trump. Because, like, if you look at, I mean, especially, like, his policy regarding COVID, he, like, issues, like, decrees, or he, um, he, uh, was recommending, like, medicine and, like, uh, cooperating with, like, the medical team there to, like, issue the same medicine that, um, Donald Trump was recommending as well. And, I mean, if you look at him, they have the, Brazil has the highest, like, the second highest global, um, infection rate and the sixth highest death toll. Um, their lockdown policies have not been very strong at all, and I think that that's a lot due to uh, Bolsonaro's policing of the situation. Um, moving on to like the climate change crisis, I guess. Uh, you know, like about like a year ago, or maybe even less or more, uh, the Amazon rainforest uh, fires were happening, and, and deforestation was occurring uh, as well, and you know that was the cause of. Uh, economic ambitions in order, yeah, like a lot of investors were investing into Brazil and then they had to like cut down these trees and yeah, that was just from an economic uh, standpoint, they had to do that, but um, for, on a like more earth sustainability uh, wise kind of yeah, uh, idea uh, it's been like, you know, devastating it's contributed to yeah, just lots of animals dying and it's seriously polluted the air as like a lot of our oxygen comes from the rainforest and yeah, we're just damaging our earth. Anything you guys would add on to like the climate change crisis uh, in Brazil? Um, I, I know that particularly um, back to going back to Bolsonaro and the climate change crisis, he actually basically took down a lot of the environmental regulations and the Amazon protection and conservation projects that were brought upon earlier. And I think it's very interesting because like, you know, Salma said, he's very Donald Trump-esque in the way that he's certainly prioritizing the economy and the people over environmental concerns that he doesn't necessarily, you know, find very important. but. Also, like Kareem said, most of our oxygen and the air that we breathe in comes from the Amazon rainforest, which is this huge, vast area full of, like, you know, a lot of medicine, like, we could have a lot of medicinal advancements from the plants that we haven't even recognized and started to document in the Amazon. And then we have, like, the fact that this deforestation is causing habitat loss for a lot of endangered species in the Amazon. And it's certainly a quite sad situation. Yeah, I mean, like, along with the deforestation, like, and, like, loss of a bunch of habitats, there's also, like, other environmental issues going on in Brazil. Like, there's, like, illegal wildlife trade, like, illegal poaching and stuff. Like, all of that is going on in Brazil. And I think it all adds up. It's not, I think a lot of the time people only focus on, you know, the climate and stuff and that is a very big issue but there are so many other like environmental issues going on in Brazil that I think also should we should like shed light on 
moving on, um, we'll be talking about the 2019 Chilean protests. So just a brief crash course. Um, during Pinochet's rule, who was a Chilean dictator in the in 1980s and 1990s, and he was deposed in the late 1990s, um, there was a history of privatization. So a lot of the economists and the Ministry of Finance people came from the Chicago School of Economics, Chicago specifically, which is a very conservative market-based um, where they're trying to, you know, privatize everything rather than give government support because they believe that the government should not interfere in the economy, that the, the government doesn't have the right to interfere in the economy. And the, because so many of the people there, especially in positions of economic power, were able to subscribe to this theory, they basically created a very interesting situation where all the utilities and everything is basically privately owned in Chile. And you don't see that because a lot of us, not even the Philippines, but in the US, like, you know, interstates, uh, water, electricity is owned by the government because they can provide for it less cheaply, but that's not the case necessarily in Chile. And what happened was that copper, which is one of their main exports, those prices started to fall. and what meanwhile but the prices of living the cost of living were increasing and people started to protest because they weren't getting as much employment or money anymore and that that caused a lot of severe protests in the country would anyone like to comment yeah about the uh, protests uh, that have occurred in um, Chile, uh, that was like uh, the cause of, as you said, like the computer privatization and everything. Uh, that was the cause of like I think the subway or like the transportation fares uh, increased, and then like a group of students decided, you know, there's why is the government doing this? We're already a pretty poor nation. We don't have that much money, and they started protesting, and then after that, more people uh, came and demonstrated to show their. The, the statement against the government, and yes, yeah, really escalated furthermore to a conflict. Yeah, President uh, Sebastian Piñera, who was the president of Chile, basically declared a state of emergency, and there were army troops against these student and innocent protesters. And I think also that brings up the question of a lot of humanitarian rights and then fundamental protesting rights being violated. Uh, in Latin America. Moving on, we'll be talking about Ecuador, whose 2019 gas subsidy protests also correlated to the Chilean protests. Would anyone like to comment? Uh, yeah, so similar to, I know that very similar to the, uh, the Chilean protests, uh, I think they actually occurred roughly at the exact same time. Um, but the Ecuadorian protests stemmed as a result of uh, increased austerity measures um, implemented by the uh, neoliberal president Lenin Moreno. Uh, now, Moreno's decision to implement austerity measures, measures was really, really a shift from the previous president, Rafael Correa, who had held, um, who'd held power for, I think, seven or eight years beforehand. Um, it was very left-leaning, very socialist. Um, 
but you know this as a result i know that suman you you mentioned um kind of more classical economics more uh, market-based approaches or sorry yeah a more market-based approach and so this is certainly something that as moreno has engaged in warmer diplomatic relations with the united states uh, um, he's turned away from relying largely on china to finance the ecuadorian government um, and so i know that especially last year that it was you know ecuador required loans in order to uh, maintain or in order to not fall into a complete budget deficit and so uh, he had to strike a deal with the imf that mandated that he implement these uh, i guess less aggressive or sorry that he implement more aggressive like uh, market-based approaches and so um, for better or for worse that resulted in his taking away of a gas subsidy which i think had been in place in ecuador for 20 or so years um, and you know we talked about how the rural population was just so dependent on this that it you know was really unacceptable to them see i mean IMF has certainly been criticized for a lot of their loans specifically because a lot of their loans are conditional loans. So the country is expected to pay them back. But in order for the country to take these loans, they have to use a lot of trade liberalization programs, which hurt a lot of the domestic industries. And basically a lot of problems occur. A lot of poverty increases, unemployment increases, and it makes the situation a lot worse necessarily. It's not a sustainable long-term solution. Hi, so now we're going to be talking about Mexico and specifically AMLO's rise to power. Okay, so um, AMLO basically came to power in 2018 after the Mexican elections. And... um, he was a very favorable president because he said he would take very severe action against the drug cartels in Mexico. That you know, again, like we have all these drug chains from Colombia, Venezuela, carrying cocaine, heroin, and such drugs back to the U.S. and Canada, where they're largely consumed, and it's creating a massive drug crisis problem, especially in Northern America, where deaths from opium-related causes are just rising and are huge. But he's been, it's been two years into his presidency and he's not really having done anything about this. Like it's, he's been criticized for being rather a more populist leader because he's just playing into the people's feelings and has been criticized for also being like very Donald Trump-esque, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, he talks a big game, but to be honest, nothing's really been done. Yeah. Um, do you think um, we could talk about like the relations between like between America and Mexico? Yeah, for sure. Go ahead, Mira. Like, I just think with the whole like drug like drug crisis in Mexico, it's also like I think it definitely affects um just the whole like border issue, like wall issue too, because. I think a lot of the time when um, people are trying to enter into the United States from Mexico, they are able to enter legally and they get a visa, but 
the process of getting a green card is just so insanely difficult. So these people will come into the U.S., stay there. They'll come in legally, but they aren't able to get their green cards, and they're therefore undocumented immigrants or, like, I guess Trump calls them, like, illegal immigrants and stuff, but I just think the process is very unfair and it needs to be reformed. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think uh, what this, like, this drug cartels, it just, like, creates very negative stereotypes, especially of the Mexican people as being, you know, drug, drug carriers and drug dealers and taking on jobs that necessarily, like, taking away American jobs, the rhetoric that Donald Trump popularized in 2016. And, yeah, it's certainly very unfair because it's not true for a lot of them. I mean... It's just creating a lot of mass polarization in the country, as we've seen with the BLM protests now. This is for sure. Like I mean, especially with. Oh, I'm sorry. You can go. Um, just with like Trump's entire like rhetoric, it definitely, like, it's just like a breeding ground for just like stereotypes, racism, everything like that. Like there are so many misconceptions around, I guess, what goes on in the border, and a lot of people don't even. They're just very unaware of what actually goes on. So it's honestly, I think people really need to actually look into what happens, see how unfair the process is. Absolutely. I find it also very interesting. I mean, if you think about Donald Trump presidency, his main issue, like main model was the fact that we're gonna build a wall and Mexico's gonna pay for it. And to be honest, neither of the two things has been done. I think what's very very telling about um, the situation, I remember remember in 2018, um, I was in the U.S. at that time, and that's like during the midterm elections, right? And I remember right before, um, there was this huge conspiracy theory that came out um, that Donald Trump supported that there was like these caravans full of Mexican rapists and drug dealers, and they used all of like the stereotypes that they know will incite fear in order to drive the midterm elections. And obviously that failed, but I think that um, it just showcased the, uh, the, the stigmas toward um, immigrants. When I think photographers actually went down to the area and most of the uh, migrants there were actually mothers and their children who were just seeking asylums. Oh, just quickly to uh, before we finish, I just think uh, as an opinion, I just think it's quite ironic how like a lot of Mexicans when they go to the U.S., they're not like I guess I mean not all of them are treated badly, but like um, yeah, they're not I guess treated that well either. But like a lot of Americans actually go to Mexico to vacation, and you know, like they go to Mexico and they you know it's fine for them. But like when white Mexicans go to the U.S., they they're treated with like discri- discrimination a bit there. I just find that quite ironic how these two countries, you know, deal with uh, international citizens. Yeah, really fast. I know that, like, just to kind of tie it back to the broader theme of, like, South and Central America, um, I know that we had briefly, I don't know, we've we've talked a lot about rising populist movements, authoritarianism, right-wing rhetoric, um, and this is something, and also, you know, recently been talking about I guess racism and prejudice towards um, towards immigrants and towards outsiders, and so this is something which has been 
um, like, you know, this has been prevalent in really a lot of countries, especially in Ecuador, for example, you know, we talked about Venezuelan uh, refugees earlier. And so even with Lenin Moreno, like his government has incited a lot of violence and a lot of prejudice towards Ecuador or towards Venezuelan refugees on the basis of, you know, they're going to steal your jobs, you know, you're not going to like racial purity, like all this kind of, um, all this kind of stuff. Um, basically, like, I mean, when you think about Latin America in the future, it's certainly a country where, you know, or, or like an area rather, where a lot of our future growth, economic growth and power comes from there. For example, if you think of this, uh, the areas mainly Spanish, and which is one of the most spoken languages in the world and used widely in a variety of companies. And I think the future with a lot of these protests and these terrible leaders and the humanitarian crisis comes from the fact that they're trying to, you know, erase their past. And the way that a lot of developed countries grew today, for example, the U.S. today, basically was that they were able to have a good degree of protectionism and protecting their domestic industries while also allowing you know them to go out in the future for example I mean, if we think of world war one world war two they basically you know expanded and i think latin america has not had a chance to do that yet yeah i mean and i think the u.s has like the u.s would not be where it is without like these countries for sure like i mean everything from trade deals to like like the citizens and all that like it really they would not be where they are today without these countries like the u.s is a melting pot of immigrants like immigrants mean so much to the country and i think like they you know it's they're not taking anyone's jobs like that's not what it is if like I guess they honestly, the U.S. just needs to realize that they aren't that they need help from like a lot of other places too. And I feel no, the message. Just, go ahead, go ahead. And I feel the message that's being spread a lot, like you said about um, Mira, about the immigrants not coming to get the jobs. I feel that a lot of the time, the message that is popularized is, yeah, they're taking our jobs. When in reality, it's like, instead of the outrage being at these immigrant communities that are coming to America to like, um, to seek like better economic progression, um, when it should really be outrage toward elites who continue um, to perpetrate and feed into like the wealth disparity. For sure. Yeah, just to keep on, I just find it quite worrying how like, 2010s, uh, South America, I think, is going more to a right-wing kind of trend of like conservatives and all that. Yeah, I just find it quite worrying as you know, a, a lot of the right-wing governments about their economic economy hasn't been doing too well. It's definitely it's a threat. Yeah, it's not really going in a positive direction. And it's especially scary because you see a lot of these right-wing, like extremist governments, utilizing like military force against the citizens which is kind of relevant regarding like donald trump and his um him like sending the troops into different states and i think that that the threat of like 
an authoritarian rule is present and this like contemporary this rise of contemporary fascism sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong um is is really real and again it means to a lot of those countries where like their democracy like yeah their democracies are like very threatened in a lot of the countries in South America and like you were saying with the whole like super right-wing extremists they do tend to uh focus on the military a lot and I think obviously we've seen this in the United States but especially in a lot of these countries I'm it's very worrying what they could do with their military to their citizens because they have a lot I guess it's a different form of government yeah um so thank you for tuning in to this this month's uh current and current issues podcast on south and central america i am suman i'm a senior uh i'm micah i'm micah i'm a senior as well uh i'm kareem i'm a junior i'm selma i'm a sophomore i'm mira and i'm a sophomore